Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. All those of you, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you've listened in the past, welcome back. I'm very excited to continue our Parsha study. We are on Parshat Chukat, and I am thrilled to have a colleague and friend, Rabbi Brent Spodek. Of course, what's most important is he is an important faculty member of Pardes North America. However, apparently he also serves the Jewish people in other ways. He is a Rav of a Shul in Hudson Valley in New York. He also, I know, because he's taught some of our students, an outstanding outdoor educator, spirituality educator, and he also does work in couples counseling, working on emotional intelligence. We are thrilled to have you. Thank you, Brent, for joining. Thank you, Tzvi. It is such a delight to be here. You know, one of the greatest things about now being a member of the faculty for Pardes North America is getting to learn with folks I learned with when I was a student at Pardes 23 years ago, including you. So it's great to be learning with you again after all this time. Oh, my goodness. 23 years, folks. I'm seeing him on screen. You would not believe he could have been a student. He must have been four when he came to Pardes. That's what I'm seeing. So here we are in Parshat Chukat. And of course, in many ways, very challenging Parsha with issues of ritual purity and impurity. And there's also a lot of death here, right? The death of Miriam, the death of Aharon, and of course, even the very ceremony of the red heifers connected to death. I know some commentaries think that this is the transition when the older generation has died and they have now buried all of the parents and the grandparents and now they are moving forward. And it's a challenging Parsha. And it also deals with geography. It describes different travels. But you have actually discovered a very powerful gem, a pasuk. We wouldn't notice it, I think, if we were just reading through on our own, but you have noticed a pasuk, and more particularly what the sages do with the pasuk, that opens up a conversation that's very important to you. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Though, just credit where credit's due. I didn't discover the Pasuk. Chazal discovered the Pasuk. I just discovered Chazal. Well, you're part of Chazal. You're a sage as well. You get to get credit also. Please tell us where we are. Sure. So in Chukat, we have, as you pointed out, all sorts of things happen in the narrative. Miriam dies. Aaron dies. There's the story of the red heifer. There's also a story of the Israelites, B'nai Israel, interacting with some of the other peoples in the area. Right. First, they come to a dome and ask to cross through a dome's territory. They're not going to drink. They're not going to do anything. A dome says no. They go a different way. Then they interact with the Canaanites. They defeat the Canaanites. And then they set off after their battle with the Canaanites. And the way Midbar tells the story, at first, it's fairly straightforward geography. Right. They're camping past the land of the Amorites, which is in between Moab and the Amorites. They're in that area. But then we have this very strange verse at 2114, 
Al ken yemar besefer melchemat Adonai et vahev besufa. And so, therefore, the book of the wars of Adonai speaks of vaheb basufa, which doesn't make sense. That doesn't quite sound like Hebrew. It's not a place. You can't find it on a map, right? And it also refers to this book that we're not exactly aware of except secondhand, Sefer Melchemet Adonai, right? So the rabbis of Chazal in Kiddushin pick up on this verse, and they go in an entirely different direction. The rabbis, you know, they're not so interested in the geography. And part of this is the story of how rabbinic Judaism reimagines biblical Judaism. They're focused not on the particulars of the battle with the people, but battles of a very different sort, battles that happen between people who love each other. So it's very interesting just to point out this is coming in a context of conflict. Not internal conflict, but external conflict, where we're negotiating with Edom and they don't let us in, and then we have to fight a different battle, and it's the story of the wars of the Lord. So it's a verse that's talking about conflict, but what you're saying is Chazal want to turn the lens from conflict with the outside world and turn it towards the question of conflict from within. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And in our history as a people, as both a nation and as a spiritual practice, we've had to contend with both of those. There are times in our history and our life as a nation where we have to contend with physical enemies outside and the dynamics of fighting with enemies. And also as inheritors of a spiritual practice, we also have to contend with the enemies on the inside, the demons that we carry around with us and how we fight with them. Chazal, at least here in Kiddushin, is much more interested in that second type of battle. So you heard here first, folks, Rabbi Spodek is claiming that Jews have had conflict with each other. I'm not aware of that ever happening in our history, but, you know, he's making that claim. We're going to go with him on that. So tell us about this passage in Tractate Kiddushin. All right. So the Gemara asks, What does it mean to talk about enemies, right? Enemies at the gate. And they're picking up there this verse in Psalms, which they're talking about earlier in the Gemara. So in this phrase, what does it mean for there to be enemies, right? Rabbi Chibar Abba says that even a father and a son, even a rabbi and a student who are engaged with Torah study together can become enemies, right? Talking about the intensity that comes out of Torah study, but it's not just Torah study. It's Torah study in these very intimate relationships, parent-child, teacher-student. And I mean, I certainly have had conflict with the people I'm closest with, right? The people I love most in the world are often the most painful conflicts. And so the rabbis lay out this idea. I mean, it's quite beautiful. They read that strange phrase, right? That Sefer Melchemet Adonai, that wars of the Lord, take place, Vaheba Sufa. They read that phrase, Vaheba Sufa, which doesn't really sound like Hebrew. They read it as Ahababa Sofo, that there is love at the end, right? So what the rabbis are saying in short is, oh, what is a holy war? What is Melchemet Adonai? It's not a war where you have God on your side and you defeat the people who are wrong. If you've ever been in a conflict with your spouse or your kid or your parent, you don't win when you win. Right. If you say, ah, I've, I've got my point, God's on my side. And they say, you know what? You're completely right. I give up. You haven't really won that argument. You're still in that conflict. I would like to be clear. I've never had a conflict with my wife. I just want to make very clear for those who are listening. Zero conflict. OK, so there's conflict. That is a remarkable record. Yes. And unfortunately, not true. So there's conflict. Go ahead. And it's a conflict over Torah is what you're saying. It could be a conflict over Torah. But if we understand Torah as instructions for how to live. 
right? It can be an abstract disagreement around Torah. What does this Pasuk mean? What is the source of this word? What does the Halakha Lama say out of this? But it can also be the Torah of our lives of how do we live, right? A husband and a wife get into a conflict over who's doing the dishes or who's taking care of the kids or who's, you know, being a profligate spender with their shared money, right? There's also a Torah in there. How do you navigate that? How do you navigate the truth of that conflict? Do you think, though, in this context, before we get to the sort of the bottom line that you're pointing us in the direction of how we find love at the end, do you think that the sages are saying there's actually value in having the conflict? In other words, conflict is not bad. Conflict can actually bring out very important moments of learning, of engaging, of passion. The conflict is not something that we have to hide from or be ashamed of. Absolutely. Not only do we not have to hide from it or be ashamed of it, we have to accept it and even embrace it. And part of the reason that's so important is because I have to understand that the person I'm in conflict with is their own person, right? They're in their own reality. I'm in my reality. They're in their reality. Our realities overlap, but we also, we're each the star of our own movie. And sometimes, oftentimes, conflict comes out of me trying to force you, whoever the me and you is, into my reality, into understanding things my ways, right? But part of what it is to simply be in relationship with another human being is to recognize, oh, this other human being has different perceptions, different realities. Can I understand them and can they understand me? Far from being bad, conflict tells you that you're in relationship with another human being, which is a good thing. And I guess we could argue from a Torah perspective, machloket, right, brings more Torah into the world. The fact that you have your way and I have my way of reading it and there's a third way of reading it, because we are voicing our different views, our different realities, we are actually creating more Torah into the world. If we have that conflict, Lashem Shemayim, right? If we have that conflict, I would say in a right way, in an honorable way. Ah, so... The text is challenging us both to think about how to have conflicts in the right way, but also there's even a way, if I understand what you're saying, what the text is saying, not only can we have a conflict, we can actually come out with love at the end. Can you help us understand this pathway of conflict to love? Absolutely. And I think something you said that's really important is that conflict is going to be a given. The real key is how do you have that conflict? How do I disagree with my partner, my child, my parent, my favorita, my rabbi? right? It's not if, it's how. And to understand how, the first place I think we need to go is to Rebbe Nachman, you know, one of the great early Hasidic masters. And he teaches in Ligute Maharan 56, he talks about peace being dependent on dot. And he picks up on this exact verse. So what's dot? Dot is awareness, consciousness, there's a Kabbalistic framework in which Rebbe Nachman is talking about dot as the highest of the spherot, but there's also a simple level of simply understanding, simply knowing. When you think about what it is to know someone, to really know someone, there's a level of intimacy. And you know, when I was a kid, there was, you know, do you know them? Well, not in the biblical way, right? Biblical Hebrew uses the same word for intimate sexual relationships as to know someone. But I think actually that the double meaning of yada, right, of dat, what Rabbi Nachman is picking up here, is to know someone in the ways that it does actually render quite similar to what it is to be physically intimate with someone. To actually know someone, you have to get a little naked. You've got to take off your protection and let somebody see you in your vulnerability. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about knowledge, 
I often think of knowledge as a source of conflict. I think I know what's right. You think you know what's right. And that produces conflict. And here you're suggesting there's almost like a different way of knowing or a different content of knowing, which is not the topic that we're debating, but the other person. And that you're saying is a dot that leads to ahava or peace or resolution. Think of it this way, just to go into an almost technical halakhic arena to come back into the emotional. How hot does something have to be before it's considered cooking on Shabbos? Yad saletitbo, right? Until you yank your hand back that it's too hot. Now, all sorts of folks will say, okay, we can now say with precision how hot that has to be, right? To so and so many degrees. And that says, we're going to establish that Yad Soletipo is this empirical truth out here, that it's so and so many degrees Celsius, and that's what it is. What I think Rebbe Nachman is pointing to, and certainly what I'm pointing to, is that that subjectivity matters, that the exact temperature at which you might yank your hand back is different from the exact temperature that I might yank my hand back. Now, there's a range, right? It's not going to be 10 million degrees. It's not going to be freezing. But there's also difference, acceptable difference within that range. And part of me really being in relationship with you is recognizing, oh, you might yank your hand back from a hot stove at a slightly different place than I do. Your reality is slightly different than mine because you're you and I'm me. I'm not trying to subsume you into me, and I'm not trying to fight against being subsumed into you. We can be in relationship through our difference. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It also sounds very challenging. As again, I'm thinking about what I have to let go of in terms of my way of thinking about the world or my desire for what I think about the world to be empirically true. And I have to let go of that from what you're describing, which for me would be very hard, Brent, not going to lie. I'm going to have to work very hard at this one to let go of that really. And to know you is to allow or acknowledge the limitations of my own knowledge of what the world is. Did I get that? Yeah. That's why this is so hard because we're all waiting for that moment when a bot cold cries out from heaven and says, Brent is right. Brent is always right. Why don't you listen to Brent all the time? He's always right. I haven't yet heard that bot call. My wife certainly hasn't heard that bot call. My kids can't even imagine the existence of that bot call. I'm not getting that bot call. I'm not getting that voice of God saying Brent is right. I am an imperfect human being in relationship with other imperfect human beings. And my understanding of the truth is at best very, very limited. And so is theirs. That's where the relationship is built. Not from, I have the voice of God saying I'm right. How do I get you over to my side? So step one in this process, what you're describing, it seems like acknowledging my own limitations and making space for the perspective and really wisdom of the other. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Part of it is knowing and allowing yourself to be known, right? In that sense of knowing and allowing yourself to be known in your imperfection and in theirs, right? That the stories we tell about the experiences of our life are necessarily incomplete and flawed. If they were perfect, we'd be God, which we're not, right? So I'm imperfect. The person I'm in relationship with is imperfect. We're going to try and figure this out together. Just starting from there, changes the nature of the conflict. And I want to make a really important point here. I'm talking about what I might call normally dysfunctional relationships, right? Relationships with a spouse, a child, a parent who you love, who you have a positive relationship and with whom there's conflict. Somebody might be in a relationship, an abusive relationship, a physically dangerous relationship. And I'm just talking on an intimate level, let alone on a geopolitical level, 
where somebody might reasonably say, this is not a safe situation for me to know and be known. The sins that I'm dealing with are not sins that can be forgiven. I'm going to talk about forgiveness in just a moment. But these are sins, abuse, violations of a different nature. And I have to extricate myself from this relationship. What I'm saying is, I think, applicable to healthy dysfunctional relationships, normal dysfunctional relationships, but not abusive relationships, not dangerous relationships. And I think that's a really important distinction. Yeah, we're going to have to circle back to that at the end, that not every conflict is, quote unquote, resolvable or even should be engaged in, is what I hear you saying. So walk us through. So share some of the wisdom about how you think we should proceed in you know, finding the love at the end or maintaining the loving relationship, even in the face of Milchamot Hashem. So I think part of it comes through forgiveness and a posture of forgiveness or tshuva, if you will. Right. And our tradition has a lot of different ways of talking about forgiveness. And we actually all know this even just from the high holiday liturgy. Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum, Bechanun, Erech, Apayim, Barav, Chesed, Be'emet, Nose Avon, La'alafim. I apologize for my singing. That's why I'm not the cantor. That was excellent. Excellent. So sometimes we have forgiveness, and I think of this as mechila, sort of like the easy everyday forgiveness that you need to be in relationship with another human being. I ask my wife to pick up milk on the way home. She forgets. She comes home. There's no milk. I forgive her. Like, I'm not carrying that with me. I'm not worked up about this. I'm not going to say, you remember that time 10 years ago I asked you to pick up milk and you forgot? It's forgiven effortlessly. But there's a phrase in the end of that, right, which literally means carrying the weight, carrying the burden. And I think about a different type of forgiveness. If you'll allow me, I'll be a little personal here. This forgiveness isn't always about sins per se. So I'm a child of divorce and not uncommon for children of divorce. I can be a little prickly around feelings of rejection. Right. This is true of me. And it's a pretty common thing for children of divorce. So if you're going to be in relationship with me, if you're going to really be in relationship with me as a spouse, as a child, as somebody really in relationship with me, I have a responsibility as a self-aware human being to recognize hmm, I can be a little oversensitive about rejection. I've got to monitor that and I've got to be aware of that in my relationships with people I love. But for somebody to really love me, that's part of the weight they're going to have to carry. Right. For us to be in relationship together is going to involve carrying a weight that this is part of my background and part of who I am and part of my psyche. This isn't about allowing me to do things that are wrong or inappropriate because this is part of my psychological background, but it is understanding that. So that's part of what it is to carry a weight in relationship with me. And any of the people I love and any of the people you love have parts of their background, parts of their psyche that are, what was that beautiful phrase from that Amanda Gorman poem? Not broken yet unfinished, right? There are parts that people are working on and they will be working on it for their whole lives. We have to carry that. We have to accept that. Now that's part of the dot, I guess, is not only being knowledgeable about the other person, but also having a certain amount of self-knowledge of what other people are going to have to leave space for because of who I am. And I guess the same thing towards them, what I have to allow, like you said, I like that phrase, carry in order to be a relationship with the other person. Yeah. And carrying that also requires a certain degree of humility, right? Recognizing, oh, yeah, I'm imperfect too. My way of understanding things isn't going to be complete. 
And I think we often mistake our perceptions of reality for reality itself. You know, I think all the time, I hope in your life you've had the delightful experience of lying out in a field with a little kid and looking at the clouds, right? And you say, I see a dinosaur. And they say, I see a turtle. I see a, you know, a castle. We're looking at the same clouds. We're telling different stories. But it's not just little kids who do that. We do it all the time. Brene Brown, the noted therapist, researcher, was asked at some point, what's the one piece of advice you would give everyone? And she said, to begin everything you say to someone you love with the story I'm telling, just as a way of acknowledging, I'm looking at a cloud and I'm telling a story about it. You might be looking at that exact same cloud and telling a different story. I want to share my story and I want to hear your story. That humility that my story is just that, it's a story. It's valid because it's my story, but it's not the empirical truth. It's my story. Tell me yours. Is transformative, but it's also humbling right? It takes you out of the God is on my side. Why don't you listen to Brent all the time mindset? So I'm starting to panic here because I realize I'm going to have to work on my midot an awful lot to succeed in the approach you're describing. We're going to keep following along because I love the challenge. I have to have self-awareness about where I'm at and how I see the world. I have to make space for the awareness of how you see the world and where you're coming from and your story. And I have to have humility to allow for the fact that the way I see it may not be the total truth, but it's my own sliver of truth, like that image of the Torah being a diamond and you see your facet and I see my facet. I have to own the fact and allow the fact that you're seeing things I can't see. And you're saying I have to be understanding of like the beautiful image you use of the unfinished parts of the other that are in the background of the person that I am talking to. Am I good so far? Absolutely. I'm going to take it a step further. Warning, this is going to acknowledge the reality of sexual relations between human beings. If you're listening with your kids at home, Rabbi Spodek is suggesting maybe you put it on pause until later. But okay, let's go. We are a format for grown-ups. And so is the Gemara. That in a physical sense, when our partner reveals themselves to us, right, takes off their armor, right, takes off their clothing, right, when we encounter the vulnerable parts of the people we love, we're tender with them. We're gentle with them. We don't use them as points of attack, God forbid, right? There's a tenderness that goes into vulnerability. If I'm going to ask someone to be vulnerable with me, to share the parts of themselves that are intimate, that are vulnerable, I have to be tender with them. And I have to ask the same of them for me, right? You think about the image of Chava, of Eve being created from Adam's rib, right? What do the ribs do? They protect your most vital organs. But to actually be in relationship with someone, right? Chava comes out of those protections. Adam has to literally be opened up in order to be in relationship with another person. That vulnerability and tenderness have to go together in a healthy relationship, right? Both physically, it's easy to see or imagine, but also emotionally. If I know my partner struggles with feelings of rejection or feelings of incompetence or anxiety or any of the things that all of us carry around, that's not a place for me to beat up on them. What's wrong with you? Why are you always so anxious? That's a place for me to be tender, to be caring, just as I ask them to be caring and tender with the places where I'm vulnerable about feelings of rejection or whatever it is I carry with me. In other words, we have to be careful about going back to our text about the way we fight our wars and how we see them and be careful about our desire to vanquish the other. 
that's not the way the sages want us to quote unquote fight, whether it's over Torah or anything else. Our goal is not to obliterate. Our goal is to reach a place of love at the end. I think that's a very powerful takeaway that you're putting out there. And, you know, I'm leery of veering into geopolitics, but thinking of the Jewish 20th and 21st centuries going back to World War One and beyond, that moment where you think you've vanquished your enemies and then you've won and now it's all over, rarely is actually the last chapter in the story. That vanquished enemy tends to come back even more ferocious than before. It's very powerful what you're saying and very challenging. But let me ask you then a couple questions as this plays out for you. Number one, I guess I want to know, are there certain types of conflicts that you would not engage in, that you don't think can become a milchemet Hashem that ends up with love at the gate, but you feel that's a conflict better left untouched and not engaged? I think there are lots of ways of thinking about engagement. And you know, one question I might ask, and this is true, I think, on a political arena, but certainly on an emotional arena where, you know, I spend more of my time is, is this a relationship that I'm committed to either because of my own heart, my own commitment, or just the reality of circumstance? And is this something that walking away from is a reasonable option? Is that something that I might want to do? And there I'm thinking particularly about questions of abuse or behaviors can be thought of as abusive, both physically and emotionally. Right? Somebody can reasonably say, this is not a safe relationship with me. And part of that is I don't see or experience the other person in this relationship trying to work on their issues, on their stuff, trying to be better. But in a relationship where you are sticking with it, romantic relationship, a marriage, parenthood, being in these dynamics and accepting the flawed, imperfect humanity of the other person and of ourselves is vital. Right? There's a Midrash that the Holy One created the world hundreds of times, and it couldn't stand until the Holy One created Shuva, because human affairs require that sort of flow over imperfection. I think it's telling that the Midrash talks about the Holy One having to learn that. God might live in the realm of perfection, where you don't need Shuva because everything's going to be perfect all the time. And that's wonderful. But that's not the arena that humans live in. We live in an arena where humans are going to screw things up, and so are we. How do we deal with that? So then I want to follow up with your wild claim earlier that there are occasions where within the Jewish people we have conflict. And assuming that we could conceive of such a scenario, I'm just sort of wondering, are there relationships in the Jewish world that you would love to see people work on and figure out a way to have the conflict but still find love at the end? Like when you think of your dream, if you could be in the room with these two types of people and try to facilitate something, make something happen, what comes to your mind? I think most often when we're in a position of conflict, we take the data we encounter, what we know of our quote-unquote opponent, and we put it together into a narrative that makes perfect sense in our minds. And so the people we're struggling with, and this is if it's my spouse, my child, my parent, or somebody else in my society, right, on a larger political level, and tell a story about them. They're just crazy. They're a religious lunatic. They're a self-hating Jew. I tell a story about them that makes sense to my own self-understanding and what data I have, right? Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel, said that the secret of tshuva is telling different stories, that if you want a different future, you have to tell different stories about the past. And so as long as I tell the story that the person I'm in conflict with is, let's say, 
a religious lunatic or a self-hating Jew. That's not the story they tell about themselves. That's the story I tell about them. So the first thing I would ask for conflicts within the Jewish people or between the Jewish people and others is to simply honestly encounter them and say, I want to understand your story. I want to understand where you're coming from. I want to understand your reality. And understanding isn't agreeing. Understanding isn't saying, oh, you know what? You're right. Understanding is simply saying, you're not crazy. Your understanding of things isn't based on nothing. I see how you got there. Can you hear my story and see how I got to where I am? Simply doing that is actually quite radical because we get entrenched in our own understandings and we form bonds with other people by sharing the understandings against those guys. As long as we know you and I are on the same team because we're not on the same team as those guys, reinforcing the story can actually feel like it strengthens the bond between you and me. But actually, that bond, I think, is fairly brittle. And if we can understand or try to understand, it transforms what the conflict can be. I really appreciate what you just said, that sometimes the way we build connection with others is by sharing a dislike or fear or antagonism towards those other guys out there. And that really just sort of encourages us to hold on to that negative story about them, because if there's a them, then there's an us, and that us feels good. And it really comes back, what you keep on telling us here is that I have to be willing to let go of my need for certainty and the safety that comes with sort of putting on that armor and closing myself off and finding a different way of openness. But I understand that it's scary. Like I have to acknowledge that for many of us, that's leaving a certain amount of safety. It's a harmful safety, but it's a safety nonetheless that I have to let go of if I'm going to you know, make progress. In this. So from an entirely different arena, I'm a Jew, I'm a rabbi, I'm a Zionist. I have lots of experience and thoughts of the Holocaust, right? And I've always understood the Holocaust in the larger sweep of Jewish history, of European history, of Zionist history. One of the most profound and unsettling experiences I had was sitting a meditation retreat at Auschwitz with a Zen order. This was outside of any sort of formal Jewish framework. And one of the tenets of this order is not knowing, right? Recognizing not knowing. And I can tell a story about the Shoah I mean, this isn't my story, but about centuries of European anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism, can talk about the Shoah in terms of Jewish diaspora over millennia, talk about the Shoah in terms of how it played out in Zionist history. That all sort of makes sense, right? I can tell a story that sort of fits together. I've told and heard this story thousands of times, as I'm sure you have. Sitting there at Auschwitz and being pushed to embrace not knowing left me recognizing how little I actually understood. I could tell these stories, and the stories aren't false, but these stories don't get to the real, real heart of how did this happen? How could this happen? Understanding that not knowing and understanding how anxious that not knowing made me and how much I reached out for other stories. It's the you know European history, it's Zionist history, it's something else. And again, those stories are not false, but they're not complete either. Underneath them, there's a not knowing that I needed to make some peace with. And recognizing that about the most horrific geopolitical reality 
enabled me or facilitated me to also recognize that in my own realities. At a certain level, I don't know my kids. I don't know my wife. I don't even really know myself. I can tell stories about myself and my wife and my kids in which they all make sense to me. And it's funny how in those stories, I usually wind up looking like the good guy and they all wind up looking flawed. But if I really recognize that there's a mystery in existence, both in the horrific acts of something like the Shoah and also the intimate everyday life of why is my kid grumpy today? Why is my wife acting that way? They don't even know. There's an unknowingness actually brings me a tremendous amount of empathy and connection with them. Am I making any sense here? Yeah, you're making a lot of sense. I'm going to reflect back to you this incredibly challenging, powerful takeaway that I think you've given me and everybody who's listening. You know, I think most of us kind of feel the only way to avoid conflict is to not care. In other words, somebody feels strongly about something, the only way I can avoid conflict is to not feel strongly about it, to sort of give way or let them have their way. And what I think the sages are telling us is that's not healthy, Machloket. I can feel passionately. I can strongly advocate. I can put my truth out there in a very strong way with a lot of passion and a lot of determination. But at the end, if I want to find love at the end, that all has to come in a frame of what you described, I think, and a curiosity and fundamentally humility. Because you keep coming back to all the ways I have to accept my limits, how much I know about the other person, how much I can really control, how much I can ever fully understand, how I really don't know a lot of the things that I think I know, which is what you just said before, that that frame of humility and openness and kindness towards the other, that that's the way we can have passion for our truths on the one hand, but still have loving relationships at the end at the same time. Did I understand your Torah today. I think so. This is Torah. This is coming from here in Kudishin. It's coming from Rav Cook. I mean, his teaching about the Soda Chuva, the secret of Chuva, is tacked above my desk. I read it every morning, all the time. I have learned over the years that if there's any heat whatsoever, do not send an email, pick up the phone and call someone. And if I'm going to pick up the phone and I have any concern about there being any heat, I read that Torah before I pick up the phone. Simply to say, okay, I've got a story about why we're at this impasse, why there's this friction. If I want a different future, I need to hold that story loosely. I need to hold it like a kiddish cup balanced in my hand. I don't let it drop, but I don't clutch it. I hold it loosely. And I'm going to be open to the person I'm calling to hearing their story. That really is the Soda Chuva. Beautiful. So look, I want to thank you very much. You've given us a lot today. You know, I feel like I've encountered a Torah that makes so much sense, is something I really want, and is going to take a tremendous amount of work to implement, especially in those hot moments of conflict. Sitting right here, calmly with you, I feel like I could be an amazing tzaddik. And I know what's going to happen in those hot moments, but I think you've not only given us a lot of helpful advice, I think you've given us a lot of optimism that if we work at this and keep this and try to hold on to it, it can make a difference in our relationships with each other, in relationships with our fellow Jews, in our relationship with the world. So I want to thank you very, very much for joining and sharing a Torah that we all need, I think, in a very profound way. Thank you. It's such a delight and a pleasure to be able to share some of this Torah and get to learn with you again.
terrific. We want to thank you. And the only request I have is that next time you come here and we do this in person. Please, God, that would be fantastic. I look forward to it. All right. As long as you're open to that, that would be wonderful. So, everyone, I think we've learned a lot. And I really want to thank Brent for his time and his wisdom. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And I want to wish all of you a happy, restful, and meaningful Shabbat. And please listen for next week's Parsha. Shabbat Shalom, Brent. Thank you very much again. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.